Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we are on chapter 41 of page 429. And the heading of the chapter is Putting on the Brakes. The section heading is The Move to Town. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy the words. When I reached home in November 1905, I was a sick man. I had remained in the West and laboured under conditions that practically brought on almost an attack of nervous prostration. The neuralgia afflicting me in head and face had caused almost chronic insomnia. I had not slept the last two nights in Utah, nor the one in Denver, and arriving home I found myself in a rather wretched condition. My sons and sons-in-law expressed strong conviction against my trying to travel during the oncoming winter back and forth between my home and the Herald office where duty as editor-in-chief called me. On my part, I realised I was in no proper physical or mental condition to face the severity of winter as I had hitherto done and an untoward accident accentuated this conviction. One day at the close of the afternoon, I pitched my mare to a buggy and drove to town to, for feed for the stock. Some boys playing by the side of the road near Lewis Scalter's happened to strike a ball into the road just as I was passing. One of them vaulted over the fence, using it with such... With, let me start that again. One of them vaulted over the fence after it with such rapidity that my horse became frightened and shied sharply to one side. Knowing there was a culvert just ahead, I tried at once to pull her back into the road, but too late, for just then the vehicle turned over at the edge of the culvert and I was thrown out for a fall. I struck upon my right shoulder with my face crushed against the ground, severely injuring my right eye. When I became fully conscious, I realised that I was groaning, the first time in my life that I had heard myself do that. Brethren Asa Cochrane, Lewis Goulter and Russell Plum came to my rescue, lifting me to my feet. Luckily, the reins which had been yerked out jerked out of my hands had caught in a wheel in such a way as to stop the mare or I might have been dragged and hurt more seriously recovering sufficiently I drove to the mill got the feed and went back home just at dusk there I was confined for some little while becoming convinced that it would not becoming convinced that it would be proper and advantageous for me to leave Liberty Hall and move, move closer to town and nearer my work. I made arrangements for occupying the house recently vacated by Bishop Kelly next door to Richard S. Salyards. I sold one cow to my neighbour, Sister Hannah Johnson, and took the other, which belonged to my daughter Lucy, to the home pasture, as we called the acreage, which formed a part of the estate of the old folks' home. The stable owned by Bishop Kelly was to be used for her shelter at night, co-jointly with the family horse and buggy. In removing from Liberty Hall, I left the selection of the household articles to be taken with us to the judgment of my wife, 
as I felt quite incompetent at the time to do anything more strenuous than keeping out of the way and allowing the younger and more active people to carry the burden of making the transfer. When the day Frau Flitting arrived, I was practically put in Coventry by being sent to Dr B. A. Greer's sanatorium in town. There I rested comfortably while kind young men and women went to work and by night the move was made and sufficient order effected in the new quarters to make us comfortable. Such furniture as we did not need with us was left at home, left at the home. Soon some afterwards removed by my sons to the care of the Herald office and quite a large portion later was designated for the use of the succeeding occupants of my old place. Among these pieces were a fine black walnut sideboard and a splendid library desk, both made by Thomas Jacobs, the home organ and great family dining room table of cherry. Twenty-five years of occupancy of the hall had resulted in a quantity of equipment necessary, necessary when my family was numerous, but greatly exceeding present needs. Just prior to this move, I had ascertained that the bishop would take over my property, Liberty Hall, and the land attached as an adjunct to the old folks' home, allowing me a fair estimate in price, such as might be agreed upon. After consulting with my wife, I told him I would sell, requesting that he and Bishop William Anderson and one of the Quorum of Twelve whom they might choose, suggesting Brother Heman C. Smith, should set an estimate upon the value of my holdings and the amount to be allowed for the same. They viewed the property. We agreed upon the details of transfer and upon the 12th of January 1906 I sold my home to the church for $3,000. This transfer of my property, known as Liberty Hall, followed upon a former attempt to adjust some indebtedness which had accrued in the past. While these debts had been incurred before I was married to Miss Clark, she had agreed to this effort, and a portion of my land was sold, the means being used, some to pay a goodly portion of the debts left at her death by my second wife, the result of some of the unfortunate business ventures herein before mentioned, and some for debts which I had incurred myself under the burden of which I had laboured for a good many years. Some of these acres thus sold were secured for additions to the farm of the old folks' home, and some were for an addition to Rose Hill Cemetery, which my land adjoined. With the consent of my wife Ada, I had paid the tithing out of this property, and had proposed the bishop then that, should I decide to part with the rest of my holdings, the, the church should have the first chance to acquire it. In turn, he had promised to see that I was reinstated in a suitable home sufficient for the size of my family. Now, when the opportunity came and such a move seemed desirable, I fulfilled my part of the agreement upon and upon his statement that the church required and could use it, turned the home over to him. At the time, I had no thought of removing from Lamoni, anticipating rather that a smaller house would be built for me on some suitable site there, which I could occupy. But as it happened, things finally worked out to a different conclusion, as shall be seen. Necessity had brought about a change of sentiment in regard to the hall, and though I regretted, very greatly regretted, to leave the home I had founded, 
and in which I had expected to spend the rest of my days, I was made to recognise the propitious events seemed to aid and foster such a removal. I have no memorandum of the exact day of our leaving Liberty Hall and of settling in the Kelly house, but my memory seems to indicate it was shortly before Christmas. Our first housewarming occurred on the December on the evening of December the 23rd when quite a large number of Smith family members assembled in our home and I led a meeting of the Smith Family Association. It is an organisation composed of descendants of Joseph Smith, the founder of the church. The date marked the 101st anniversary of his birth. On the evening of the first day of the year 1906, my young, youngest daughter Lucy, yet Eva, was married to Jesse M. Lysinger. I had been permitted to perform the ceremony of consecration. They only stayed with us a few days and then went to Omaha, where the young man was engaged in work. Later they came back to Lamoni, living first on a farm south of town and then moving into the village itself. There they still reside, the parents of two sons and one daughter. The next heading, Senate Committee. The cold weather passed pleasantly enough, though I was in poor health. In the early part of February, I was required to go to Washington, having received a received notice that requested my presence to witness before the Senate's committee on privileges and elections before which the right of Reed Smoot to a seat in Congress was being contested. I have written of this strip in a former section of this book. It was on February the 2nd that we started for the capital, leaving our household affairs and the care of our three children to sister Ella D. White. Head who came down from her son's home in Mount Air for the purpose. In Washington, we were installed by Brother Sheehy in comfortable quarters in the St. James Hotel, while Brethren Kelly, Heman, Alexander and Briggs were lodged in various places. There was a family of saints there by the name of Peck, but they were not in a position to care for many, though I believe Brother Briggs became their, de their guest. We attended the sessions of this investigating committee and were assigned seats, seats of honour, I may say, for mine was immediately at the right of Senator Smoot, directly opposite that of the prosecuting attorney and near the president and secretary of the anti-Mormon organisation, under whose auspices Mr Smoot's right to his senatorial chair was being contested. My wife was given a seat directly at the left of the Honourable Carlyle, the main legal stay of the prosecution since his associate, John Taylor, was not able to be present on account of illness. As I have stated, my cousin John Henry Smith had been on the witness stand the day before we arrived, and though it was expected he might testify further, it happened for some reason he was not called upon again nor did I see him at all. On the second or third day of the sessions, however, as we were leaving the hall, a woman spoke to me near the door, calling me Cousin Joseph, and asking if I did not recollect her. I had to confess that I did not, and she stated she was John Henry's wife. I then remembered her and brought my wife up to exchange formalities. I had met John Henry's wives on a visit to his home in Salt Lake City. 
even the summer before, but not seeing her in company with him, I had been taken unaware and failed to recognise her. She exhibited some feeling at this negligence or oversight on our part, but accepted our apologies. She was rather plainly dressed and had stood during the entire session among a crowd of women. Whether they were friends of hers from Utah or otherwise, I do not know. I had noticed them glancing frequently at my wife when, as we entered, the sergeant at arms, with an air of great deference and respect, immediately found her a seat. For the life of me, I could not prevent drawing some contrasts my thoughts running something like this. Here was I, a leading representative of the reorganised church, one who had been for years pitted in the public arenas against the Utah church and its political forces in a public and important committee of the Senate, been treated with marked honour and respect. Given an honourable seat, my wife also recognised and treated with courtesy and preferment whilst a woman, wife of the most foremost official of the Utah church, was left to stand unnoticed, even not recognised or not accounted entitled to such attentions. There was some time each morning when we were left to our own devices, since the committee did not meet until afternoons. We managed to take in some of the city sites sites as best we could, though some days the weather was wet and streets sloppy. At some times it was wisest for me to keep closely to the house. We visited the capital, however, ate in its restaurant and had several auto rides about the beautiful city. I have already recorded the little visit which wife and I made to Toronto at the close of the hearing in Washington and our return home on February the 21st. Next heading to Zion. I was closely confined at home a portion of the time on account of illness on my own part and an enforced stay indoors because of attacks of scarlet fever which brought first one and then another of the children under the care of the doctor. We were quarantined for some 35 days. While attending general conference at Independence that year, I learned that there was a great desire upon the part of many that I should come there to live. My son Frederick M. very strongly urged it, as also did Bishop Kelly. So I began to look about for a possible location. I found one which I thought suitable, a piece of property owned by brother John D. White at 1214 West Short Street. In consultation with Brother Kelly before leaving for home, I told him that if proper arrangements could be made, those within my reach, I would be willing to move. As I had always placed myself and my temporal affairs under the care of the church, we discussed my situation and agreed that I could spend $2,500 for a suitable home. I mentioned the property of Brother White, with which I was well pleased. The presidency had occupied it as an official meeting place during the sessions of conference. Learning from Bishop Kelly later that the property referred to could be obtained, I returned to Independence and on the 12th day of July 1906 I received a deed to the place and it has been my home ever since. The $2,500 
which I had to invest did not reach the sum asked for the property, but the balance was paid by certain friends and businessmen of the church, for which kindness I am very grateful. A few repairs and slight alterations followed to make the house a bit more adaptable, adapted to our needs. While attending to these details, I was the sole occupant of the place at night, usually getting breakfast at Sister Whitehead's nearby and accepting invitations from other friends for other meals. The formalities of the law being closed, I returned to Lamoni. With the help of my son Frederick, a railroad car was chartered and loaded with his household goods and mine. It came on ahead of us by one night's start. We brought with us our piano, some favourite chairs, pictures, clothing and some articles of furniture, as were deemed essential purchasing a few pieces which Brother White had left in the house, all of which were new or nearly so. A coterie of friends, the names of whom I do not know, clubbed together and raised the funds to pay for this transportation of our goods and furniture. The car arrived in Independence safely, and with the help of Brother David Rees and others, my Lars and Pennets were delivered into the new home where at sundown we sat at our own table, properly furnished and supplied. The whole change of occupancy had taken scarcely more than 48 hours' time, which seemed to me to be remarkable. The only help I gave was in opening boxes of books or other light work, my principal object being to keep out of the way. After thus recounting this change of residence, I may say in passing that at first it seemed inconceivably inconceivable to me that in so short a time and under such remarkable circumstances I should have made such a decided change and that too without a tear of regret after spending 25 years in the only home I ever built the only one ever established under my personal care and supervision but so it was when looking over property and independence, I was beset by a number of brethren who urged me to buy a much larger and more imposing home than the one I chose, or one in a more pretentious neighbourhood and surrounded by more expensive residences. However, I declined making such a choice, telling the bishop and others that I would not accept a home that would not assent too strongly the difference which already existed between the many and the few among my brethren, assuring them that a house similar to those occupied by the major portion of my fellow church members was all that I desired, or in fact all I would accept under any circumstances. An added reason for this stand was that during most of my life I had worked for the church and had spent my energies in its service, paying no attention to wealth or its accumulation. Now, knowing my own circumstances, whatever may have been my wishes, or however aristocratic my tastes, I knew I could not occupy a large and imposing residence, for its care would require the expenditure of more money than I had, or a larger income that I should accept from the church. Thus it was on the 7th day of August 1906, found my little family installed in what the newspaper reporters were pleased to call an unpretentious cottage, from which from that day to this I have called home. Next heading, slowing up. I have little to record for the year 1906 after our removal from Lamoni to Independence. 
I was not well enough for active duty in the field and was obliged to confine my efforts to what little supervision of intellectual affairs in the editorial department of the Herald as was possible for me. I tried through correspondence to keep somewhat in touch with the missionaries in the field and I preached at rare intervals. The year seems not to have been marked with anything of a character special or interesting enough to be set out in these memoirs. Under the impression that I might be called away by death in some sudden manner as men of my age are liable to be, Early in the new year, I made all necessary arrangements for such a contingency, so far as the material things of this world are concerned, and felt thereafter to simply and contentedly busy myself with the hours that might still be allotted to me through the divine clemency, which had been exercised over me all my life. In doing this and in directing my family concerning my wishes after such departure, I was moved by no special fear of the change whose approach I thus anticipated. The only perplexing thought about it was the possible condition in which the church might be left. I wished to do what I could and direct clearly enough so that when I should depart, no obstacle which I might have removed should be left in the way of the church moving smoothly and successfully forward under the administration of those called to preside after me. Next heading, the Quaker City. The first work of the year of 1907 of any note was a trip to Philadelphia to help in the dedication of a new church there. Aside from some personal recollections, which may be of interest, the story is best told by extracts from the Errol the Herald, as follows. 2,000 years ago, Philadelphia had no existence unless in the divine economy it had been designed and foreseen as one of the geographical and political landmarks to be evolved in the planting and upbuilding of a nation on a portion of the earth known in prophecy as Joseph's Land. It may be, too, that in the development of that nation, the spot had been chosen as one of the as one the situation and environments of which would be useful in emphasizing the superior value of peace over war as a permanent conqueror of savage natures and destined to play some part in the latter day spread of gospel truth from independence to philadelphia now is no further than in 1839 and yet the journey made by Joseph Smith from the far west occupied many days by slow ways of progression. Now it is a passage lasting but a few hours and is made in comparatively great ease and comfort. The Brethren of the Church of Philadelphia in 1901 began an effort to gather in the shekels preparatory to building a house in which to worship. This effort was sufficiently successful to provide for a suitable site at the southeast corner of Howard and Ontario Streets, on which now stands a small but comfortable, commodious and substantial building, which was the scene of a portentous gathering of the clans on Sunday, January the 27th, 1907. This gathering was for the purpose of dedicating the building to be used in the honour of God and in the service of humanity, 
In gospel ministrations, the preaching of the word and those devotional exercises which right-minded, right-thinking devotees and disciples of the master may do without let hindrance or fear. It is stated that in 1839, Joseph Smith, the first elder of the church, preached in some ten different places in the then city. The localities where and the memory of some of the sermons then preached have been preserved and record kept, the extent of which the readers of the Herald may learn more by and by when the forthcoming history of the church in Philadelphia, now in process of evolution, is completed. The powers that be in charge of the work in the New York and Philadelphia district and the Philadelphia branch took the situation into consideration and determined to make the dedication of their chapel the occasion of a demonstration of the latter-day working force. To this end, measures were taken to secure a large, popular and centrally located hall known as the Oddfellows Temple, in which on Sunday evening, after the dedication after the dedicatory services of the day at the chapel were over, a series of meetings were begun to continue until the evening of February 3rd, omitting the evening of Saturday the 2nd. This series of meetings was extensively advertised, the brethren sparing no, sparing no pains to let the public know what the reorganised Church of Latter-day Saints is and is trying to do. One of the methods employed was to secure an excellently executed souvenir programme, thousands of which were printed, laid on the seats and distributed at the doors. These advertised the speakers and the location of the chapel and contained a good picture of the building and of the president of the church together with a copy of the hymns to be used each evening at the service. The list of speakers named... On the souvenir included Joseph Smith and Edmund L. Kelly of Independence, Francis M. Sheehy of Boston, John W. Rushton of Leeds, England, and Walter W. Smith of Philadelphia. In addition to this list, there appeared the names of Mrs. Wallace N. Robinson of Independence and Miss Josephine Islip of Boston as soloists. Miss Henriette Groenveld, Philadelphia, organist, and Orin K. Fry, also of the Quaker City, as choir master. From this display of reputed talent in the church, for all were members of the church except the organist, the readers of the Herald will see that the local managers of affairs, Brethren Sheehy, Walter Wayne Smith, John Zimmerman, Orin Fry and others of the offices of the branch had taken pains to make the dedication a notable one and the demonstration in the Odd Fellows Temple a strong one. And a strong one it was, we safely assure the saints. The exercise at the chapel began on Saturday when the district religio and Sunday school held their reoccurring conventions in the afternoon. At night, the district conference held its session and did the usual routine business, including the appointment of the district officers and their delegates to the annual general conference to be held at Lamona in April next. 
On the morning of the 27th, the Religio and Sunday School held a prayer service at 8 o'clock, followed by the usual branch Sunday School session at half past nine and closing in time for the dedicatory service at 11. As the latter hour drew near, the house gradually filled until the space was fully occupied and many stood unable to find seats. The service was in charge of Brother Francis Sheehy and the song service in charge of Brother Orin Fry, the local chorister and his choir, strengthened by the addition of some visiting brothers and sisters from other branches, Sister Clara Zimmerman acting as organist. That stirring Israelitish song, How to the Brightness of Zion's Glad Morning, so familiar to our congregations, was used in opening. And Brother Walter Smith led the devotions in a feeling offering of praise and worship. The choir sang an appropriate anthem and Brother Zimmerman, in a brief statement regarding the effort to build and the cost to the saints, delivered the deeds and the custody of the building over to the presiding bishop, Edmund L. Kelly, who at the close of the dedicatory prayer, prayer placed the premises in the hands of the Philadelphia branch to be held by them in use and occupancy to the service and honour of the master under the principle of a free pulpit and an open Bible. The sermon was preached by President Joseph Smith, who expressed great satisfaction in having been permitted to be present and assist in so important a work, by which the efforts put forth by the first elders of the church so many years ago will be emphasised, indicating that God will carry on his work and see that no labour performed in honesty of purpose by those whom he had called would be lost to them or be permitted to foul in accomplishing his designs. After the sermon, the bishop offered the prayer of dedication, fervently and reverently placing the responsibility of upholding the virtue and integrity of the church in, in Philadelphia upon the saints there, and pleading that through the ministration of the Holy Spirit they might be continued in the love of Christ to maintain the honour and glory of God among themselves and before the world. The songs by sisters Robinson and Islib and the hymns and anthem by the choir were appropriate and added to the efficacy and beauty of the service and the benediction offered by Brother Sheehy closed his, this remarkable and memorable meeting. The services at the temple were begun by a sermon delivered by Brother Sheehy on Sunday night, followed during the week by sermons from Brother Kelly, Rushton and Smith, whose effort on Sunday night, February the 3rd, was a strong and logical presentation of the salvation offered in Christ as contained in the scriptures and as held by the church. It was a fitting and forceful appeal for the integrity of the word of God. Taking the exercises from the first to the last, including all parts of the appointed divisions of labour, the occasion was a marked success. There was not a ripple of discontent nor a hitch nor jar in the arrangements, not a note of discord, nor an unpleasant interruption of any kind from the opening hymn to the last benediction. We do not care to close this account without stating that in order to care, to care for all and to avoid any unnecessary interruptions in the exercises at the chapel, during the two Sunday meetings arrangements were made 
for providing the whole family of saints with refreshing food served in the lower auditorium at noon and evening. Thus the saints were enabled to remain together, become better acquainted and see and learn of each other's welfare and love of the work. This feature was a marked success. And... may well be noted for other occasions of a similar character. There was a fine body of saints at Philadelphia, among whom are a number of rising young men, fast becoming fitted and qualified to present the faith to the public and to maintain the warfare in defence of the truth against all opposing forces met in the world, the field as stated by the Master. Representatives came from the several branches of the district, except Scranton, from New York, Brooklyn, Providence, Camden, and from regions round about the great city of brotherly love. They came by ones, twos or more, to be among the household of faith, and they were all blessed, for the Spirit of the Lord was in the midst thereof. Next heading from Memories Store. At my first visit to Philadelphia in 1875, the branch was under the charge of Elder Ditterline. The membership had been, evolved, had been evolved from elements left scattered after the death of Joseph and Hiram Smith. Only one of those members is now living, I believe, a lone representative of that period. Reflecting some incidents of that first visit come to mind. A brother, then living in Harrisburg, came to see me. I had made his acquaintance years before in a very singular way. He had come to my home in Plano, telling who he was and asking permission to stay at my house while he fulfilled a certain promise he had made to the Lord. This vow involved a seven-day fast and was for the realisation of some special desire which he held sacred but did not divulge. I granted the permission, I watched him zealously, and I know that he did not partake of a nourishment at my home during the whole week, nor, as I believe, did he do so elsewhere. He stayed with us something like a month, and then returned to his home, from whence, after some time, he wrote to tell me that the result of his fast was entirely to his satisfaction. At the time of that first visit to Philadelphia, he learned of my presence and came to pay his respects and to invite me to come to the capital city where he would make arrangements for me to hold services. I appreciated the invitation, though I was not privileged to gratify him, for the side trip was at the time deemed impracticable. I have written of another trip to this Quaker city when I had the pleasure of visiting points of historic interest in company with Elder Zenus H. Gurley, whose patriotism and enthusiasm matched my own. Some of these events were recalled in this year of 1907, when in company with Sisters Zimmerman and Robinson, Brother Sheehy and I visited the old landmarks once again. Carpenter Hall the house where the Declaration of Independence was signed, the museum and a point down the river where we per were permitted to inspect a United States man of war. The afternoon was thus very profitable, was thus very profitably spent in my estimation, 
Our return from the interesting jaunt being accomplished just in time to avoid a rain which had come in earlier would have quite effectively dampened our enjoyment. One day a card was brought to me at the hall where we were holding services with the statement a gentleman would like to see me at the door. I went and there stood a man I had not seen for years, Samuel Schaffer, a former resident of Lamoni. He did not want to come into the hall, for he had stopped in on his way from work and was still wearing his work clothing. When I settled in Lamoni, this man had set out the trees in my rather large orchard, but now he was labouring as a contractor and builder. He had wondered if I would recollect him, which I did, and was cordially glad to see him again, for I had known him pretty well and had respected him as a man. As I had the pleasure of greeting him and his family, wife and two children, at a later service in the hall, which, though he was not a member of our faith, he seemed to enjoy greatly. I think I have recited elsewhere the fact that when Brother Evans and I were in England, Brother George Batty, a workman employed in a hat factory at Stockport, made for each of us a hat of excellent fit and workmanship. While at Philadelphia, while at Philadelphia, this time one of the brethren noticed this hat, which, of course, had by that time received much wear and some damage, since I used it constantly except in very warm weather. Being also employed in a hat factory, this brother Harrison would not be satisfied until he had taken the measure of my head to, for, to make for me a soft derby such as I was in the habit of wearing. He was very successful in this kindly labour and the hat he made for me fitted me very comfortably and is still, seven years later, in good preservation and service. Except for being somewhat out of the fashion, it is well suited to me, as I have stated heretofore that I am not friendly to hard hats. The trip home was made in company with Bishop Kelly for a part of the way and Sister John A. Robinson for the entire distance. No untoward event happened on the way, but on arriving at Kansas City, we found that we had come just in the wake of a severe snowstorm. It was cold and our train was very late. So it was a pleasant surprise to find Sister Robinson's son, Wallace N., at the station with a carriage in which the trip over to Independence was made in comfort and with dispatch. The next heading, A Calamity. The Herald office at Lamoni was burned in January 1907, which was indeed a distressing calamity to the community and to the church. Not only was it a loss financially, but some very valuable records and manuscripts were destroyed. It was considerable it was with considerable depression of spirit that the conference assembled that year for business. This was this very serious question was presented what should be the action about rebuilding? There was a strong division of opinion, some in favour of rebuilding at Lamoni, and some insisting upon a re removal of all of our publication interests to independence, the centre place. It seemed difficult for the conference to settle this question and its agitation caused much anxiety to the saints at Lamoni. My associate counsellors and I took the matter into close consideration and after invoking divine assistance, 
were rewarded with the clear indication that the office should be rebuilt at Lamoni. Soon after, my son Frederick M. and I went to Lamoni, attending a meeting held for the purpose of raising funds for this project and determining upon the necessary preliminary details. The decision of the presidency to rebuild at Lamoni cleared the spiritual atmosphere there as if by magic. A committee was appointed which included the bishop and measures were outlined and steps taken to reorganise the public, to reorganise the whole publishing department. It is a matter for commendation that the periodicals came out regularly through all this time of trouble. The facilities of the town's of the town newspaper office being replaced at our disposal being placed at our disposal these things are matters of hi- matters of history my part in the work was pu- uh, perfunctory though whatever official task was required of me was with the help of my associates performed next heading pleasure and pain In passing in review the memories of the conference of 1907, many things are brought to the surface. Some of these are pleasing and others are painful. One of the happy incidents occurred when near the opening of the sessions, Apostle John W. Rushton, rising to a question of privilege, presented Brother Evans and me with copies of the resolutions of greetings which had been accorded us in England. A committee assigned to the task has had these kind words of welcome and appreciation suitable, engrossed and bound and they were sent to America to to be presented to us at this time. Besides the goodwill expressed in the greetings themselves, the books were excellent specimens of the engrossing and bookbinding art of English workmen, handsome gifts indeed, which both of us appreciated as coming from these far away and loyal saints whose companionship we had enjoyed. Another pleasant episode was that my counsellor Frederick M was presented with a gavel made from the mahogany tops of the pews in the old Juliana Street Church in Philadelphia. In this building, Joseph Smith and others had presented the gospel as early as 1842. The saints of the Philadelphia branch had sent this token. At this session, a serious question of public polity was presented to the church for decision. A resolution was presented by a number of the ministry, the consideration of which, because it would commit the church to a certain course of procedure, required the exercise of the best wisdom attainable from the body as a whole, as well as the calmest and wisest counsel that could be found among the individual leading minds in our membership. At various times in our history, an effort had been made by some radical members of the ministry to involve us in a wholesale denunciation of secret organisations, especially of the Masonic Order. When this effort would reach the general conference in the form of a resolution, there was usually raised a storm of discussion for and against such proposed action. It was well known that as editor-in-chief of the Herald, I had persistently refused to open its columns 
to this discussion. It was also well known that while as an individual I had not become a member of any secret organisation, I was strongly opposed to the church assuming any position of antagonism to such orders by openly prohibiting members to unite with them. At this conference, the subject was revived and debated very warmly, at times verging upon anger. Unfortunately, the Masonic fraternity was so strongly denounced and the adoption of the proposed prohibitive measure so strongly urged that severe opposition was aroused among the more conservative elements of the ministry, including some very prominent officials. During this discussion, my position was brought into prominence. I was criticised for not having personally objected to our church members joining secret orders and also strongly condemned for not, as a leading officer, warning them against such affiliations, especially with the Masonic Order. In this discussion, my brother Alexander, presiding patriarch, and in the warmth of his argument, publicly accused me of having failed to do my duty, to do my whole duty as the prophet and president, in that I had not warned the people in reference to this matter. It seemed a very tense moment for the conference and certainly a very serious situation for me. As I look back upon it, I seem again to feel the hush that passed over the assembly under this open condemnation of my brother. And I am again led to raise my heart in thankfulness that I had so schooled myself under adverse criticism that I was able to check my feelings of resentment against accusations which I felt were the result of lack of careful thought and consideration. I feel an especial measure of gratitude that upon this embarrassing occasion when my own brother was my accuser, I was permitted to so control my own feelings as to pour oil upon the troubled waters and succeed insofar as one individual could in preserving the unanimity of the whole church. As I quietly waited in the absolute hush and quiet which followed my brother's words, the conference, breathless, watched to see what effect they would have upon me. In that moment, a revulsion of feeling seemed suddenly to pass over the assembly, palpably showing the great body that the discussion had been carried too far and that such a radical presentation of the matter was an error. To the great relief of everyone, a much modified resolution was immediately presented by a more conservative group, which resolution, after careful examination, prevailed. The resolution to prohibit members unifying or uniting with secret orders and the consequent open denunciation or denunciation of the Masonic Order in particular were presented and led by Brethren Elmer E. Long, R. M. Maloney, Alsis W. Green and some others of less prominence as leading men. The attack being met by Brethren George H. Hilliard, Richard C. Evans, Edmund L. Kelly and others of similar feeling, more or less prominent as leaders. I mention these names not for any individual 
or invidious reasons, but to show the divide or division of sentiment that was prevalent among our able men. The situation was extremely critical and it was only by a most careful exercise of the spirit of wisdom and revelation that the storm was prevented from creating spiritual havoc among us. After the crisis was passed, I made a short speech in which, without attempting to reply to the charge, that in not warning the people of the church against joining secret orders, I had failed in my duty as its leading officer. I called attention to the fact that I could not give no stronger evidence of the opinion I held on the subject and no more effective warning to those who might choose to follow my personal lead than I had given in the fact that I had never united with any secret organisation whatever. I stated that the only faults that I could that could be laid to my door was that I had declined to lend my aid in any degree or in any degree to efforts calculated to make a desultory attack upon such orders and that I had refused to allow the church to go upon record as publishing in its official organ a denouncement of any given secret order, calling it by name and branding it as the embodiment of all evil. Whatever others may have thought of the incidents, I do not claim that any special personal triumph accrued to me from the outcome of this discussion or from the situation which occurred during its presentation. Nor do I claim any special virtue for keeping my high and strong temper under control in silently bearing the opprobrium of the charge laid upon me so publicly by my brother. While it is a pleasure to remember that some of those most earnestly engaged in the discussion willingly admitted to me that they thought I acted wisely, I dislike to record the fact that my brother stated that though he could acknowledge he erred in making the charge in that way he still believed himself altogether right and that he felt it was unnecessary to apologize to the words for the words he had uttered in debate i am quite free however to state that this attitude on his part by no means detracted from the confidence and trust i had in him as a man and as an officer of the church called of god I cherish no feeling of antagonism whatever, and here freely place on record the fact that what resentment I felt was in so slight a degree that I could hardly be justified in even saying I forgive. He had evidently expressed himself while under the control of certain strong feelings and convictions for which no form of forgiveness from me was necessary. It may be here clearly and truthfully written down that he never discovered from word or act of mine that I remembered the part he had taken in this discussion. I looked upon his face as he was lying in the casket before being borne to the last resting place of his body and said aloud as I was crying in my heart, a truer man than Alexander H. Smith never lived. I believe it true. In my experiences with him from boyhood to manhood, always together, though upon occasion thinking widely differently, there was never a break in our friendship or our brotherhood. The business minutes of the conference will show what was done concerning the resolution I have mentioned and others. 
My diary shows little activity for the summer of 1907. The full reunion was held at Moorhead, where the meetings were, as usual, of a high order, notable for their spiritual and encouraging character. Following the sessions late in September, Brother Evans and I went to Webb City, Missouri. In walking from the station, we asked a young man to direct us to the home of O.P. Sunderland. This he did, as he believed, but following his direction, we went astray. Later, some boys playing marbles on the street put us on the right track and we found the residence of the brother Salt and were at once made to feel at home. Considerable interest and a little excitement had been aroused in the city because of the saints in the city because the saints had erected a building. It was quite near some other churches, and much local attention had been given the movement. At this dedication people gathered from a large area all about some older saints like Walter Taylor, Charles Blank, Isaac Ross and others, coming from Pittsburgh, Kansas, Joplin, Missouri and other points. This interest gave us a very fine and appreciative audience throughout. The services were in charge of Brother O.P. Sunderland, Brother Evans delivering the dedicatory prayer and I the sermon. Meetings were held during the day and evening and all felt well repaid for the effort of assembling. Brother Evans and wife had been on a tour in the West and they had reached Independence just in time for him to accompany me on this trip to Webb City. His wife staying the while with my wife. After the day of dedication was over, he and I returned to Independence where we parted and he and his wife leaving for their home in Toronto and I departing on the same evening, the 1st in October, headed west on what was destined to be a long journey. That was the end of chapter 41. The next episode will be chapter 42. Thank you for listening.